0: Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. This week's instalment of the Bonner Private Research Podcast comes by way of the Wigan sessions. A few days ago, I sat down with my friend and best selling author Addison Wigan. Or rather, we zoomed from opposite ends of the Americas to discuss neo Wilsonian progressivism, the trouble with creeping Marxist ideology, how literature became captured by the woke mob, and what, if anything, we can do to resurrect and protect the idea of America. Please enjoy my conversation with Addison Wigan up next. Mm-hmm.
1: to the Wigan Sessions. I'm here with my good friend, Joel Bowman, who I believe is in uh, Buenos Aires. Correct. Present. Correct. Yep. And we're going to talk about some interesting things that are outside of our normal economic discussion, but I think we'll probably get into that as well. Um, but Joel, I wanted to tell you something. <laughs> Please you, do. Uh, First of all, no, thank you for having me on. <laughs> Wait, hold on. We've been doing this Wigan Sessions uh, since the beginning of the pandemic and you are episode 69 so I was wondering this is the question I wanted to ask you does that mean anything to a globe-trotting Aussie episode 69 come on as as in uh, some kind of salacious
0: innuendo that I ought to insert here or (laughs) insert salacious innuendo you can say whatever you want I'm just saying it is what it is (laughs) Well, you know, I think we were, I, I think I was also on episode 40 something or 50 yeah, something okay. or so, you yeah, know, I don't know if we have to add those numbers together, if it comes up to something else, <laughs> oh, maybe, some maybe. of the
1: numerological. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> we could probably do that too. All right. So we were just talking about Omicron because, um, and I just wrote this in, in, uh, in our daily email that people are learning new letters uh, from the Greek alphabet because of a disease.
0: Yeah, it's not the ideal way to be introduced to the classics, is it? But I I, I note that we missed letters nu and z,
1: or she, and I think well, that's we kind actually, of interesting. No, we actually didn't miss them. They just didn't get like Omicron. Just sounds we, like a transformer giant
0: that's coming to kill us. We we skipped them. Yeah, I think we yeah. we skipped by them because new was um, had you know the novel obvious novel con- connotation. And then I think uh, people were were uh, speculating on whether we missed she because of uh, you know some trepidation with regards to the, the leader of the Little Chinese, uh, the Chinese Party. Communist Party, Party. or. <laughs>
1: All right, well, let's get into this. Um, we had an interesting conversation before, before we started talking today about uh, a novel that you wrote and uh, its connection with a theme that we've been talking about for years, which is the idea of America. So w- let's get started. Your, the, the title of your novel is Morris Alive. Yes. They, indeed. Oh, I think you got it. I have my copy. It's in the other room. Very good. I, I, <laughs> I have it have here. I should have been on the spot and, uh, <laughs> and I, ha-
0: I have it here, hard copy in hand, none of this uh, digital simulacrum, not the real thing. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah. I, it's, I like
1: the premise of the story. It's it's your semi autobiographical. I guess it's probably <laughs> ad libbed a little bit. Um, but it's it's an Aussie's perspective on moving to the United States.
0: Yeah, broadly and, and speaking, what you I expected mean, to find. right, right. I mean, um, I live in a building here in Argentina that uh, the great Argentine essayist and literary critic Jorge Luis Borges called a labyrinth to confuse men. Uh, so, <laughs> but Borges Borges also said that, uh, or observed rather, that all fiction in the end is autobiographical. so in, in that sense it is uh, it is kind of my own story in a way or at least uh the, the experiences that I've had filtered into the narrative. but you' you're completely right when i when you say that it's an outsider's perspective on the idea of America and part of the reason that that I thought that that might be novel or interesting to readers was because, as as you know and as you've pointed out on this episode and elsewhere it's become incredibly fashionable of late particularly among uh, uh the learned chattering class and uh and those in the academies to to sledge america and uh, you know to to take on the top dog uh it's seen as some uh, especially of the last couple of years it's it's often seen as some Uh, irredeemable stain on on the pages of history this you know from the very outset the founding is now the date of the founding is up for debate Uh, what went into the founding documents is, is scrutinized and it's it's very difficult oftentimes if you're within a particular cultural malaise and the book here is set at the beginning of the 21st century, uh, if you're in a particular cultural malaise, which is to say, if you are an, a United States citizen, it's sometimes difficult to step outside of that vantage point and get an outsider's perspective. And so I was fortunate enough to uh, emigrate to the United States in, I think, right around 2020 or early 2021, Oh, sorry, early, early 2000 or t- 2001. And, and I immediately saw um, you know, I come from Australia, your listeners can probably hear my my accent, but, you know, we, we might look a bit like Americans and talk a bit like Americans, and we have, you know, the same TV and Western culture and are largely influenced by American music and television and movies and whatnot, but I I recognize pretty quickly what, uh, what Freud called the narcissism of small differences, and that is to say that there is a huge gaping difference between um, the founding principles of the United States and those of Australia, which is the the, the population of which still ought rightly to refer to themselves as subjects since they they haven't had their own revolutionary war yet, where Americans very proudly consider themselves citizens. So there's a lot of very, very um, fundamental differences between the United States and, and countries abroad. And so I wanted to just bring an outsider's perspective uh, to that, to that argument, to that uh, to that debate, and see if there was anything worth offering.
1: Yeah. So, why don't you uh, just for the for the context of it? Why don't you walk us through the narrative of the of the story? So you arrive and you kind of right. Well, so yeah, the, the... I, I know your story probably just about <laughs> as well as you do, but but it would be good so... if you said it.
0: <laughs> so the the protagonist, the eponymous Morris. Um, he he follows his heart across the pond as a uh, hopeless Keats quoting romantic and part time barroom philosopher um, lands himself in the United States and um, pretty soon embarks on uh, a, a I would say pretty classic um, American uh, coming of age type story a, a, a classic bildungsroman in in narrative structure so. Uh, There's a coast-to-coast, I don't want to give too much away here, but there's a coast-to-coast road trip. There's lots of homages to to the great American writers, um, you know, H.L. Mencken, Lysander Spooner, Henry David Thoreau, writers who I was reading at the time and uh, who meant a lot to me and who I think, you know, America has, as you know, a a long and storied history uh, when it comes to uh, subversive writers and writers who um, who challenged their, uh, their government, their status quo. Um, and, and I think that we might be uh, particularly in the, in the realm of fiction, we might be, uh, in danger of losing that as everything com- kind of becomes homogenized, um, in, in the world of, of literature at the moment. But anyway, so, so Morris goes on his, on his journey, um, which takes him from sea to shining sea. And by the time he, he ends up at his, uh, Final destination. He has met a, a colorful cast of Americans, both over the phone um, and in little any towns uh, across the fifty states. Um, you know, places in the Rust Belts, the Prairies, the Rockies, uh, what have you. And uh, and he's gotten to know a, a little bit more about America and hopefully a little bit more about himself along the way.
1: But there is also a, like an economic narrative as well, because part of the idea of America wraps up the idea that you can re- recreate yourself, you can you know be innovative or entrepreneurial and find a home some in some way. Uh, but that gets lost along the way. it seems like
0: yeah, well, i i mean, you know it's it's no coincidence, i think that a great many of the towering giants of American letters have, have chosen for their theme uh, either geographical or intellectual uh, frontiersmanship and, and this kind of pioneering mentality. And you go back and think about it. I just mentioned, you know, Spooner and, and Thoreau, but, it, but it runs through, uh, it runs through literary fiction as well from, you know, early, early 20th century, uh, you know, you think back to sort of Hemingway or the whole lost generation. I mean, it, it was Gertrude's, Gertrude Stein, you know, who, who to whom's bosom all of the all of the lost American generation uh, fled, but but you'll notice, of course, that none of I them lost also- anything of their Americanness when they went yeah. there. I mean, they they were, they were abroad, but they were more American than ever.
1: There's something uh, like I was thinking of, like Walt Whitman, and mm-hmm. um, if you move forward to like Woody Guthrie and um, bob dylan there's like a theme of this kind of sort of lost um soul searching like that yeah like they don't really fit anywhere but the continent is wide and large and uh and they, they go around meeting different people and then we have some of our greatest poets and uh and songwriters that come out of that that same theme so what it what is it what is it to you that's unique that's that's kind of my question about like Mm. looking at it uh, from an Australian perspective like what is unique about that that's different than say trying to figure out how to live in Australia after you got sent there because you committed some crime in London
0: (laughs) (laughs) well I'll I'll just preface this by by saying you mentioned Walt Whitman. He's I, I took a few lines of his poetry for at the very beginning uh, of the book here, and, and I'll I'll read them out. It's a foot and light-hearted, I take to the open road, healthy, free, the world before me, the long brown path before me, leading wherever I choose. Uh, and I chose that particular passage because for me, uh the United States embodies this idea of choice and self-determination like frankly no other uh, experiment in in governance or national mythology or whatever you want to call it uh, has before or since and it, it's really caught up in the essence of of the founding documents and you know people like to like to denigrate that now and like to um you know presume from their their perch here that they could do without such rights as are enumerated in the first amendment to the constitution for example um that being the right to freedom of speech freedom of the press freedom of religion and in particular to assemble and petition the government for redress of grievances but you don't need uh you don't need a particularly colorful imagination to to uh, envision what happens when you don't have those kind of founding principles. And so you mentioned what might be different in Australia. Well, you only need to take a look at what's happening on the ground in my country of birth at present, where there, the, the army is on the streets uh, in Melbourne in Victoria. Uh, they have built permanent camps in Howard Springs in the Northern territory where they're, where the Australian defence forces, the euphemistically named Australian defence forces are now rounding people up and taking them there against their will. Uh, There's no such thing as freedom of speech in Australia. You know, we like to think in these weird countries, which is to say Western, educated, industrialised, rich and developed countries. We like to think that we have all of these rights as they're laid out in the founding documents, but we get those mostly vicariously. We get those through watching cop shows that are produced in the United States and, and just assuming that we have those too, but in, in countries around the world, and you could have a look in you know Germany or Austria, for example, in the United Kingdom, what's happening in Europe with regards to, I know we're going to talk about uh, vaccines and traveling and mandates and all of that kind of stuff, but there's, there's a real, uh, there's a real independent streak in the, in in the genetics of the American Dream, and I, I just don't find that elsewhere. And I don't think, I think it's taken for granted. And the the grand irony is that it's taken for granted, uh, and denigrated by uh, largely a hysterical clutch of the most privileged people on the planet that are whining from Ivy League perches about uh, you know what a what a misogynistic racist you know irredeemable country they live in when they live in not only uh, arguably one of uh, the freest countries on the planet now but but maybe maybe ever
1: so do you think then that 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 sort of uh lack of understanding is threatening the the, the idea of america the way that you you have come to see it yourself. Yeah, uh,
0: I mean I, I don't think that I don't think you have to look very hard across the the landscape today um you know w- whether it's whether it's the abysmal uh betrayal of its duty uh the that the fourth estate has perpetrated uh by way of holding up false narratives um or whether it's the um the encroachment of progressives into wanting to tear down the um, the checks and balances that hold the separate powers of of government apart. Um, there are there are many, many movements afoot right now. I know we spoke last time in this program about, uh, the attack on the western canon and uh cancel culture and you know these are all these are all different front lines on on the same basic battlefield um but what i'm wary of is i could you know i could understand um in some way people who had never enjoyed these freedoms not not valuing them uh in the way that they should but we're we're talking now about people who are essentially Essentially, ingrates. I mean, they've they've they grew up with these freedoms, and and maybe that's why they don't have they don't imbue them with nearly the value that that they ought to.
1: Yeah, I mean, the obvious question there is like, what do we do about it? Like, how do we make sure that people understand it? Da, da, da. We we have all these debates about the education system being indoctrination, but not education. We're not training people to be free thinkers and independent. Uh, you know, independent within the economy, right. we're not training people to do that anymore. We're training them to like follow these narratives that, like, like you and I would not agree with. Um, but that's a, a really long way to get to the question. Like, well, what can we do about it? I guess you write you write a novel and hope that people read it. Um, yeah, I mean, it shows, shows like that, this yeah. where we talk about it and we're like, yeah, 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 but. It's hard. I mean, one of the one of the questions that I've been asking is, how does somebody like Dr. Fauci have Mm -hmm. so much authority on, you know, popular media where no one even questions it anymore? And so that I find that dangerous. So let's just kind of put that aside. Um, your perspective as you move into uh into American culture and then out of it and then back into it and then out of it. Um <laughs> like what is it that is driving people to to I know that you're calling them ingrates, but what's the impulse there? What I don't understand. Well, I don't, I don't think it's by accident. Just...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, it's it's not accidental. I mean. You, I know you've written before uh, extensively, both in uh, in your newsletters and in books that you've authored and co-authored um, with with Bill Bonner, for example, about Gramsci's long march through the academies. To take to take just one example, but what we have now is is the the wholesale capture of intellectual life in the United States. Um, beginning with the academies, and now the, the graduates from these academies are going to work in publishing houses, for example, and they are churning out books that look and feel and sound exactly like their neo-Marxist professors. And so, it's any wonder that the culture is being flooded with uh, exactly that kind of toxic ideology. So, you know, when I when I look at at you know people in their, uh, not to sound like a curmudgeonly old geezer here, but when I look at, at, at people who are newly graduated from, from uh, universities who aren't maybe as flexible in the workforce as they want to be because they've taken on a lot of debt or, um, and, and, you know, they've been sitting in lecture halls listening to um, or being rather indoctrinated to for, for the past four years, it's, it's not difficult to understand why they would come out and just see this as... As par for the course, and again, part of the reason of me wanting to write uh, a work of literary fiction is because I think, by and large, the newsletter industry, um, and and large thanks to to yourself and uh, and others and the alternative media, just in general, is is fairly well studded with independent thinkers, uh, just just by nature of their being alternative to the mainstream. Um, and and so you know we have a lot of of firepower there, but but when it comes to the arts and in particular to literary fiction, it's there's just no game. I mean, it's completely owned. Uh, if you look at you know Amazon bestseller lists or Oprah's book clubs or whatever, it's completely owned by uh, people who are avowed Marxists and and who. Have a very particular agenda, a very particular worldview, and and are not shy at all in 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 pushing that. And so I think it's it, it's you know potentially has an outsized impact if we if we stake a bit of a claim there and say actually uh, not not one step further. And you know I may I may just be a tiny little uh, rusty needle in a hay field, but it has to be a start. You know we had. In the second half of the twentieth century, we had no shortage of American writers who, uh, you know, would have been appalled at the kind of at what passes for contemporary literature. And I'm I'm talking of of you know giants like uh, like Saul Bellow, for example, who I, I uh, allude to pretty extensively in the book. This is a this is a this is a, Updike as well. Philip, you know, this, the the list goes oh, on okay. and on, but. But there's, you know, this is a this is a man who won uh, three National Book Awards, a Pulitzer Prize, a Nobel Prize in Literature. You know, just the I think the most decorated uh, man of American letters in the second half of the century. And yet he is all but scrubbed from, uh, you know, contemporary uh, English literature 101 courses at, at universities, where you know they're they're instead of studying uh the western canon not not to mention just the americans in the in in the western canon they're studying you know they're unpacking the the cultural significance of cardi b's lyrics or some other absolute nonsensical waste of time Uh, and they're doing that in place of or in lieu of you know shakespeare and goethe and cervantes and all these other um you know dead white men that they that they'll never read and and you know in front of whom they have precious little humility <laughs> so so i think yeah this is it it, All right. it has well, to I'm, turn I'm
1: gonna, I'm gonna ask you like an explosive i'm gonna throw a bomb into your uh into your to your particular narrative at this moment like what's you know, wrong with Mar- you. <laughs> yeah well, what's wrong with marxism how long is this program? <laughs> How long we- uh, yeah. I'll give you five minutes.
0: <clears throat> yeah, well,
1: to, what's, what's to boil- it? Uh, why do
0: we eat it so much to, to boil it down? Um, uh, I think that the, the primary beef I would have with it, you hear a lot of people say, well, it's, it's great in theory, but it just doesn't work in practice. I, I don't agree with that. But even that says, well, it's great on paper, but we just didn't take into account human beings. Which, when you're coming up with a theory, a sociological or economic theory, and you don't take into account human beings, or you treat them as superfluous, uh, which is essentially the way that they were that they were seen, their interactions to be commodified, then you're missing, I think, a fairly essential part of the entire project, and that's individuals along the way. That is, this is again to get back to the the cornerstone of of the American experiment: it's the individual that matters, not the collective. And when we talk about uh, about Marxists, and particularly neo-Marxist, uh, that is that is to say the kind of postmodern neo-Marxist uh, theory that is sort of emanating from American academies and academies across the West at the moment, what we're talking about is essentially a, a worldview that posits hierarchical power structures at the center of everything and seeks to divide people up into classes in this kind of zero-sum interaction the logical end game of which is displacement and war between the classes and if you read something you know your your listeners are I'm sure very well versed in this but the communist manifesto is a 60 page pamphlet, uh, which calls for, for violent overthrow. Um, and th- it, if you see the world through this kind of warped prism where everything that somebody else has is, is because they have first of all denied it to you, then, and, and we, we live in this non-cooperative zero-sum world, um, where everything is a power struggle and we all exist on these hierarchies, then it's very plain to see why people aren't interested in, in open debate and discussion, because for them, it's not about discussion or compromise. It's not about the market. It's not about free exchange. It's about dominance and power. And I think uh, that's that's to be resisted at, at all costs, if, if only because we know where it ends. Uh, and the history was- his books are pretty clear on that.
1: I was putting the same idea in context of the Hegelian dialectic, which is kind of like mm-hmm. every idea that has driven Western society mostly um, leads to the next idea. And Marx was a capitalist who critiqued the capital system. And if you can't get out of the, the that dialectic, if you can't get out of the idea that it's all about material goods and who has what then you're stuck. You're stuck with the the conflict, and that's that's what I think is happening. So I'm not I'm not actually trying to. I, I think I'm only just trying to add to what you're saying. Is that mm-hmm. if you only view the world in that way, then you're only going to the you're the the only logical conclusion is is violence. Instead of trying to like figure out, okay, we there are people who have stuff, and there's other people that have don't have stuff and there's bad people and there's good people whatever like that all exists why can't we Rodney King (laughs) why can't
0: we just (laughs) get along (laughs) (laughs) right well I mean even even just in purely economic terms I mean the the debate ought to be ought to be fairly well closed at, at this point for anybody who paid any attention to
1: yeah, because it doesn't. Who,
0: who, who was digging graves in, in throughout the 20th century, and you know, we we the experiment was run, and it was run in in Russia, in China, in large parts of Southeast Asia, up and down this continent that I'm speaking to you from here. Uh, it was run in parts of Africa, and and everywhere, no matter what the climate. Uh, what the natural resources of the place, no matter the cultural inclinations of the people, no matter what came before them, when this was run in all of its various iterations, whether it was uh, Castroism or Maoism or Stalinism or Leninism or Trotskyism or, or, or any other ism that you care to point to that is on that spectrum or, or, or that end of the spectrum, the results are, are horrific and and speak for themselves. So it's, it's when we seed... Uh, small points, Uh, we, we, you know, we, uh, we, we open a wedge, I think, that makes it difficult for people who are coming along behind us to, uh, to navigate, um, to navigate properly. And so, you know, you get this kind of confusion and, and this kind of bumbling around where people don't know that you can't have a command economy, no matter how many bright, sparks you get into a room no matter how much or is coffee you give them and you know under a dim light and with a with a, a whiteboard marker to get them to figure out how many shoes need to be made or how many loaves need to be baked it doesn't work like that the way that markets work most efficiently uh, most efficiently for the production of capital goods is uh is a division of labor a la uh mr smith and the invisible hand left to do its work uh, in the way that, you know, um, in the way that um, Mr. Leonard had with his iPencil um, essay. This is, you know, we, we don't need to know how to mine lead and mill wood and, you know, get the yellow paint and, and chop down the rubber trees. We don't need to know how to do all that stuff. All we need to know how to do is the job in front of us. Uh, we need to know how, how to do it well to to specialize and that liberates us to spend our time in other pursuits and to escape that kind of merely commodified existence which seems to be i mean ironically exactly. enough it it's it's the entire preconception of the marxist uh mentality in the same way that race is the entire precon pre, pre uh, you know pre Eminent uh, figuring in the mind of the the anti-racists. All they see everywhere is race. All that the, the all that these people see is that which they are trying to get past. <laughs> Doesn't make any sense.
1: When when we first started talking about talking today, you had just done a piece of your own on neo-Wilsonian progressives. Wow. So. Um, that's kind of a muffle. I got what you meant immediately, because I had already written a bunch of stuff on uh, Wilson's influence in the pre, like in the early 20th century, and then and then through his own presidency, which enacted the Federal Reserve, and a lot of the, the problems that we are still addressing with, are, are addressing now, like fiat money and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but your point seemed to be a little bit deeper than that. Like it sounded like you had read a little bit more than I might have on Wilson and
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's it's up a, to your
1: own conclusions therein.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a rotten onion when you start peeling back the, the layers on his mischievous acts. They just they just keep you keep peeling and you keep finding finding more uh finding more rot. But yeah, essentially. Wilson was—I mean—to cut directly to the heart of it. Wilson was the first president, uh, the 28th president in the United States, but the first president to openly and roundly, uh, in in George Will's words, hack at the foundate, uh, hack at the founding documents, root and branch. And so he believed, uh, in contrast to the founders who held that. Uh, that rights were inalienable and that they were natural and that they preceded government and that it therefore was government's responsibility to secure those rights. Wilson held, as did his progressive uh, acolytes around him, like Justice Oliver Holmes and others, that their uh, um, apprehension of of the subject was that rights were not Natural that they didn't precede government, but that rather they were privileges and they were contingent upon uh, certain behaviour, and so that they were to be conferred by the government. Now the founders used the word secure in the very first sentence of the Constitution, so it wasn't like they were trying to hide it deep in the in the T's and C's or the fine print or anything. They were they were fairly adamant about this, and uh, Madison talks a lot about it in in the Federalist Papers, but but he being Wilson, uh, really, really deeply disagreed with this. Uh, He saw the role of the state uh, as something like a cudgel uh, to kind of beat and shape society into the shape that he thought it ought to uh, represent rather than letting the individuals, uh, individuals with their own natural rights uh, express their own wills, desires, fears, hopes, dreams, what have you uh, in their own lives, he saw the role of the government um, as to withhold rights uh, from people, uh, you know, based on certain behaviors that he wished for them to undertake. So it's not surprising when you when you understand the, the kind of core uh, philosophy of someone like Wilson's, why he would, for example, as you mentioned, introduce the Federal Reserve Act, which he did in his first year in office, uh, the the Revenue Act, which gave which gifted Americans the income tax, so you can thank Wilson uh, for that one. It was Wilson who, with the um, uh, with the the aid of that slippery propagandist Eddie Bernays, uh, whose books were found uh, among Goebbels' favorites, um, it, it was it was those two who concocted the marketing slogan to sell World War One to an otherwise war-weary America. They had just remember, a generation earlier, concluded their own bloody civil war. They wanted nothing to do with foreign entanglements, um, as Jefferson had pointed out much, much earlier in the piece. Uh, it was those two, Wilson and Bernays, who concocted the phrase, making the world safe for democracy, uh, which we now take as just something that something that bef- that befalls the world's policeman to, to do um, but that was that was a, a pure marketing slogan. Uh, and so the, the you know the kinds of things that that Wilson was up to during his uh two terms and he he ran for a third term by the way despite having had a suffered a stroke in 1919 uh, but was was roundly defeated uh, in any case the kinds of things that he was up to during those eight years, are not at all surprising when you when you recognize what his fundamental beliefs were yeah um, well and, and, and we that's what we're circling we back to now through we the up at the nations. league league of, league of nations yeah exactly which actually it's, we it's, have
1: a tie to uh, that uh, we wrote about this in empire of debt we have a direct tie to the first draft of the league of nations it was written in the library of 14 west which is I actually went to the uh, Maryland Historical Society to verify because the story has had been told over <laughs> And I'm like, is that really true? But it's uh, actually a historical record. Yeah. And right. so, so he wrote it in because um his his motive for getting us into World War One is guaranteeing Belgian neutrality and 14 West, which is the headquarters of our corporation. Um, was the Marburg Mansion, and Marburg was the ambassador to uh, Belgium at the time. Mm-hmm. So we're we're directly connected to this uh, progressive <laughs> uh, story, even though we probably don't agree with a lot of it. Where do you see progressives going now? Because like, if I could take you through uh, Empire of Debt a little bit, we had um, we had Wilson. And then we had like Coolidge. Coolidge was on the, he was on the market side. And then we had FDR who battled the, um, the great depression. And then we had Eisenhower who who like wanted the government to build roads. And then we had like (laughs) Kennedy and, uh, and Johnson who wanted to freaking dominate the world again, just like Wilson did. Mm -hmm. And that, that caused a, a, Problem, And then we get to like Reagan and, and his whole era where he's like the only way we can dominate the world is just to beat the shit out of everyone. And so then he used government debt for the first time to 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 really facilitate the massive um, the massive uh, military complex that Eisenhower warned us against. And then you go back and forth and it doesn't really matter who's in charge anymore because now that we have this big uh system of debt and military that uh that it, like we could vote in Trump or we could vote in um who's a curtain guy <laughs> sleepy joe sleepy joe biden like it doesn't really matter who's in charge anymore because it's just this big behemoth that that doesn't Yeah happen. he could like where, so, where, so here's a good question then, in, in light of all of that. Where are the Walt well, Whitman's? Where are the uh, Woody Guthrie's? Where are the people who are actually saying, you know, they were progressives themselves, but they were saying, mm-hmm. just let us do our thing and, and we'll survive. Yeah, and well, I think. <clears throat> uh, yeah,
0: I mean, I, I entirely, uh, you know, agree with. Maybe it's just Morris. Way. Morris alive. Morris Morris it's Morris alone Morris alone uh, yeah, <laughs> at, at, the the at the moment yeah well and so that goes back to the, you know that goes back to you know what what fronts are we fighting on I mean are we are we in our own echo chambers I mean you know by yeah, by, we are. by well, writing I think something of, my biggest
1: critique of uh social media is that yeah. we are we're stuck in our own echo chambers like we only hear what we want to hear now
0: yeah. I mean, how, do you, yeah exactly. how
1: do you how do you engage in society if you're literally not willing to listen to the person who's walking next to you on the sidewalk?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you're talking to somebody who who wrote 100,000 word uh work of literary fiction in an age where people can barely concentrate beyond 140 characters. So, you might be talking to the wrong guy there, but but yeah, I I agree with your your general assessment of the of the the past century. It's you know, in that essay that you that you mentioned, um, center cannot hold. Uh, I took some of uh, Joan Didion's uh, some inspiration from her. She was around at the time, uh, at, as you'll know, in in the '60s, and she was covering a lot of what was happening in the kind of Haydeshbury um, co- countercultural malaise of uh, of that period. And it, I just thought it was it was very interesting that. A lot of the kind of spiritual heroes that progressives cite today when they uh, look back in history, they they like to think that they are aligned in some way with civil rights activists, for example, from that particular era of of US history when nothing could be further from the truth. And so I just teased out five, uh, you know, the kind of big five ways that they were... uh, absolutely anathema uh to to those um to those activists and that was of course with regards to free speech that they are absolutely antagonistic towards now and you only have to pick up a a newspaper or um or witness what's happening in american american academies to see who got cancelled last week or you know who's going to get cancelled next week so uh, we have that we have the Folks in the '60s who were very much anti-establishment, uh, very much anti-military, and which is fairly much the opposite of what we have, uh, what we have presently, where the last two presidential candidates both voted adamantly for the invasion of Iraq, among a, no end of other foreign military misadventures and expensive ones at that. Um, we had a movement that encompassed uh civil rights issues both with regards to race and gender you have a look at the progressives today they are among the most rabid bunch of neo-segregationists to be found anywhere in the union Uh, so that is another way that they've managed to disgrace themselves um and there were a couple of other ones that i that i i had in there oh bodily autonomy happened to be one where People in the 60s wanted nothing more than to uh, be left alone to take whatever drugs they wanted, whether it was contraceptives or uh, recreational, you know, LSD, what have you, and were very, very fearful of the government encroaching upon that most sacred of civil liberties. Uh, And now, you know, we're, again, every other day, we hear of some new medical mandate that the government is handing down and dictating... To people. So it, it seems to be an, a, a complete about-face um, when it comes to the modern progressive sensibilities and those who might consider themselves uh, descendants of, you know, some peace-loving hippies. But if you take it all the way back and you realize the foundings of America's progressive movement, you find that it was Wilson who introduced the Sedition Act and clamped down on pacifists and conscientious objectors to the First World War. It was Wilson, who was an out-and-out out, uh, racist, both during his tenure as a president at, at Princeton and while he was uh, presiding uh, over the presidential uh, administration and oversaw the segregation of federal officers, the military. I mean, these are, these are things that that your listeners can look up for the moment. They'll probably be scrubbed from Wikipedia in not too long, but, um, but, you <laughs> know, but you the ver- <laughs> there are, there are textbooks out there that are, that are physical and that'll take a little longer to hunt down and burn. But, um, you know, we know that he was, he was hugely uh, huge, hugely, uh, militaristic. He yanked the Americans into world war one after all, um, you know, and on practically every front that the, self-described new left were fighting in uh in the 60s uh, wilson was wilson was diametrically opposed to them as are today's progressives so i just thought that was a kind of an interesting full circle um to to have come i'm not exonerating by the way that the new left for their uh economic illiteracy and you know people have pointed out to me since that article um and i i agree with this assessment that yes of course these uh, people were were championing free speech but when they got it uh, they were the they were the first ones to usher in the age of uh, political correctness they they were of course against the police and against the state but of but in the after a very marxist fashion when it was the, when it was their team at the top of the uh, of the power um totem pole they had no problem uh, using the cudgel of the state uh, to you know to suppress their own um their own enemies. so yes i I, I was perhaps being a little too charitable to the new left uh, then, but I really just wanted to underscore how far uh, the progressive have the progressives have have drifted from those that they would think of as their spiritual ancestors.
1: you know what would be fun? <laughs> a debate between you and uh Aoc let's uh, you should send her an invite
0: to the show we we can moderate yeah let's do it
1: (laughs) for some reason I get her tweets like how the hell did that ever happen I get her tweets like (laughs) so maybe I'll just tweet her back
0: yeah just tweet her back hey let's uh, let's let's have a debate but you'll have to that's
1: Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez
0: yes the the Congress menstruating person from New York. And le- let's let's have them on because um you'll have to do it quickly because the we only have 12 years before the world ends. So we'll have <laughs> yeah, to be according to them. We'll have to be snappy. Time is of the essence. <laughs> At least they can tweet in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's <laughs> no energy one... that goes into
1: sending tweets. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: All right, man, this is fun. Uh hold up your book again. I hope Here it is you can Morris get Alive. Get that on uh Amazon. You can get, the, you get that on Amazon. That's right. You can, on the on the river of no returns. Go and yeah. go and buy a book, make a click. Yeah. And you know, I I didn't mention, but it makes the it makes a perfect Christmas gift for aspiring progressives maybe you can inoculate them against uh, their wayward philosophies before it really takes hold
1: (laughs) you said it i didn't good man (laughs) all right joel thank you
0: talk to you a lot of fun thanks mate thanks for listening to this episode of the bonner private research podcast you can find more conversations like this in the members only section of our website at com. if you would like to contact us please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonaprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.